Well, it is my joy um, to welcome back with us this morning Todd Bolton. And Todd is a friend and a professor and a dear brother of Christ of mine and yours as well. He serves at um, the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo. Uh, he and his wife Rhonda and their family are with us today. He's been with us a few times in the past. And uh, church, will you please welcome him as he comes to preach the word this morning. Thanks, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. Great to see everyone again. Uh, just bring greetings from the Cornerstone Seminary. Uh, we're really thankful for just this partnership and ministry that we get to enjoy. We're thankful for this church, uh, for your prayers. Uh, Pastor Chris has come and spoken at chapels for us at the seminary many times. Uh, Andrew's been at the seminary for, I don't know, 55 years or so now. Uh, just chipping away one class at a time, but he's making progress and he does well at all he does. Uh, so it's just a joy uh, to be here again. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to Mark chapter 8. You know, many times we don't realize the implications of the things that we say. I remember when we moved into our uh, first home that we purchased, I made the statement to my wife one morning, I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom. Now, I'm not a very handy person, so I really had no idea of the implications of the statement when I said I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom. Uh, I didn't know that when I pulled the linoleum off the, the floor that there would be sort of this particle board that was held with all these staples that I would somehow have to remove. Uh, I didn't know that when I put the new sink in that it wouldn't match up exactly where the old sink was and that I would have to sort of figure out how to pipe to this new sink. Uh, I didn't know that when I put the kind of tile floor, it wouldn't be the same level as the floor was previously, and I'd have to sort of figure out some workarounds for that. So I really had no idea of the implications of the statement, I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom. Or maybe think about a statement like this. Maybe if you're a husband, your wife comes to you and she says, we're going to have a baby. Now, you might have some idea of what that means, but you really have no idea of the implications, especially if it's your first child. I think in some ways the same thing is true when we say or when we profess that Jesus is the Christ. I think we have some idea of what that means when we make that statement, but I don't think we realize the full implications of that statement. I think sometimes we make that statement saying, I have sin and I know that he's a savior, and so I profess that he is the Christ. Or maybe we've hit rock bottom and we need hope. Or maybe we're just not able to handle the pressures of life and we need help. But we don't often realize the life-altering implications of the statement, Jesus is the Christ. But thankfully, we have a powerful Savior who can help us to see him more clearly and to realize all of the implications of the statement that Jesus is the Christ. And so the title of this message from Mark chapter 8, verse 11 and following is, Do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do you see Jesus as he truly is? So let's pray and then we'll look at this. Father, we need to see Christ this morning. We need to see him every day. Because when we see him as he is, we change. When we behold his glory, we become like him. And so, Lord, would you please just give us a glimpse of Christ this morning? 
That we would see him in all his glory, in all his authority, in all his power, and that it would radically change us. That we would be people that trust you more. People that live for you more. People that, as the song we sang this morning, that would cry out, Father, not our will, but yours be done. And so show us Christ this morning. That's what we need. Let us hear your voice through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've ever looked at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8 is kind of the the middle right of his Gospel. And the whole Gospel is focused on two questions. Who is Jesus and what does that mean? And for the first seven or so chapters, really that question, who is Jesus, has kept coming up again and again and again. Jesus has been performing miracles, the the crowds are amazed, his disciples are amazed, and that question that keeps coming up is, who is this man that he can do the things that he does? In this chapter, it's the turning point, because we get the answer to that question, who is Jesus, But we also start to answer that second question. What does that mean? What are the implications of the fact that Jesus is the Christ? So first, as we look at verses 11 to 22, we're going to have to beware of not seeing Jesus as he truly is. There's three really different kinds of groups of people that are not seeing Jesus clearly for who he is. And the first is the Pharisees. So look at verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. But sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So here's this first group of people that don't see Jesus as he truly is, and it's the Pharisees. And what's their problem? Well, their problem is they really just refuse to see Jesus as he truly is, right? What do they want in verse 11? Well, they want a sign, a sign from heaven. They want direct proof from God that Jesus is who he says he is. And if I was Jesus at this time, I might kind of respond with a little sarcasm. Like, oh, you want a sign, a sign from heaven. You know, what, what if I could cast out a demon from somebody that no one else could cast out? Oh, wait, I've done that before. Uh, healing sickness and disease? Yeah, I've done that too. Actually, I stayed at one town and I just healed people all night long. Heal a paralyzed man? I've done that as well. What about calm a storm? That would be pretty amazing. Oh, wait, I did that one. Creating food out of nothing for thousands of people? I actually did that twice. But you wanted, you know, kind of dramatic proof. What if I could raise the dead? I bet that would prove. No, wait, I did that also. I've risen people from the dead. But you said you wanted, you know, a sign from heaven. So you're probably thinking, like, you want, like, the clouds to part and, like, a voice to come from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Like, wait, that happened as well. So what do the Pharisees really want? They've seen all these signs already. Well, it says at the end of verse 11 that they don't want proof about who Jesus is. What do they want to do at the end of verse 11? They want to test him. They want to trap him. They want him to somehow, you know, reveal, you know, say that he's there for authority or something so that he gets in trouble. So the Pharisees' demand for a sign is not a genuine desire to believe in Christ. They're actually looking for a way to discredit him. 
They're refusing to believe all the signs that he's already given them. You know, and people are like that today. You know, we refuse to believe all the, you know, evidence that we do have that Jesus was a real person, that he really existed, that he really rose from the dead. And so we need to beware of refusing to see Jesus as he truly is. You know, if you're someone that refuses to see him as he truly is, you need to stop making excuses for your unbelief. Again, the Pharisees, they weren't really looking for evidence. They were refusing to believe the abundant evidence that was all around them. And sometimes we can be like that. I mean, everything in us and around us testifies to the fact that there is a God, that he's powerful, that we have sin, that we need a Savior, that we are going to face judgment, and yet we refuse to believe it. And so if you're like that, you need to stop denying it. Stop suppressing what you truly know and repent. Because if you refuse to see Jesus as he truly is, you never know when your last opportunity might be to call on him for salvation. And so beware of refusing to see Jesus as he truly is. But there's another group of people that he mentions in verses 14 and 15. And these are people that sort of have respect for Jesus, but they look to other things rather than him. Look at verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus is now turning to his disciples, and he wants to give them a startling warning, right? He says, Beware. Watch out. There's something that is very dangerous that you need to pay attention to. And he describes it this way, kind of interestingly. He says, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, leaven, we all know hopefully what that means, that it's this thing you put in bread, right? You put just a little bit in, and it starts to permeate everything. So there's something that if you even have a little bit, it's going to start to permeate all of your life. And he says it's the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I think the leaven of the Pharisees we just saw, that there's an unbelief, a refusal to believe. If you even have a little bit of that, you need to watch out. But he also says you need to watch out for the leaven of Herod. So what does that mean? Well, if you go back to Mark chapter 6, You see Herod. You could turn there. And the last time we saw Herod, he was beheading John the Baptist. But it's interesting, if you look back at chapter 6, verse 19, you know, the situation is Herod had took his brother's wife, and John the Baptist called him out on that, and his wife then, his brother's wife, was not too happy about that. And so she really wanted to hatch a plan to get rid of John the Baptist. But look what it says about Herod in verses 19 and 20. Herodias had a grudge against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. Why not? Verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So Herod doesn't actually want to kill John the Baptist. 
He recognizes that John the Baptist is a holy and righteous man, and even though he doesn't quite understand everything that John the Baptist is talking about, he likes to listen to him. So then why would Herod then eventually behead John the Baptist? Well, look at verse 26. Right? This is where Herodias' daughter dances. Herod promises to give her whatever she desires, and she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter in verse 25. Verse 26 says, And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So the Pharisees, right, they refuse to believe Jesus for who he is. But Herod, Herod is someone that sort of respects Jesus, respects John the Baptist, but because of what he actually goes and beheads John the Baptist? Because of his fear of his dinner guests, right? A competing interest that was more valuable to him than Jesus. And so what are those competing interests that are keeping you from Jesus? Maybe it's comfort, maybe it's money, maybe it's power. Maybe you find yourself saying things like, well, I would follow Christ, but I don't really want to give up this relationship. I mean, that was Herod, right? Or I would follow Christ, but I don't want to give up the lifestyle that I enjoy so much. That's the rich young ruler who you'll meet in a couple chapters if you were to continue reading through Mark. Or I would follow Christ, but I don't really want to give up this particular sin that I enjoy. Jesus is saying, beware those kinds of thoughts. Beware of even the smallest amount of those kinds of thoughts, of those kinds of unbelieving thoughts. Because he says, a little bit will permeate everything. And so beware of looking to anything other than Jesus. But then there's one more group of people that he addresses, and that's the disciples in verse 16 and following. So in the face of this dire warning, right, beware of the leaven, even a little bit of what the Pharisees are about or what Herod's about, what did the disciples start talking about in verse 16? They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. I mean, they're totally oblivious to what Jesus is saying. There's something that Jesus is saying is very dangerous to them, and they're talking about each other the fact that they have no bread. Verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? I mean, these are startling words from Jesus to his disciples. I mean, think about the questions he asked them. Do you not understand? Do you have hardened hearts? He's not talking to the Pharisees anymore. He's talking to his disciples. Do you, disciples who've been following me around, who have seen all these miracles, do you have hardened hearts? 
He says in verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear. And these are statements that he was making earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 4 about the outsiders, that they are fulfilling what Isaiah said, that there's people that have eyes but they don't see, they have ears but they don't hear, they don't recognize the things of God. And Jesus is now turning that question onto the disciples. Are you just like everyone else? That you see these things, but it, they don't make a difference in your life. That you hear these things, but you don't understand what I'm talking about. He says, beware of not really seeing me for who I am. There's a danger in knowing a lot about Jesus, but not having a real relationship with Jesus. I mean, they know the answers to the questions, right? Right? How many baskets full that first time when I had five loaves, five little loaves of bread that would fit on this table and there were 5,000 people, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. Okay, and then when I did that again with just a few loaves and thousands of people, how many baskets full? Seven. I mean, they are totally acing the test, right? They know the answers. Twelve. Seven. But they're failing the class of what those answers mean. I mean, how about us, right? I mean, how many of us could pass the test about Jesus, but then fail the test of actually living for Jesus or living in light of everything that we know? I mean, every week we hear that Jesus reigns over all, and yet we find ourselves flipping out over the state of the world. Every week we hear that Jesus is worth living for, but we'd rather spend all of our time with sports or entertainment. Every week we hear that Jesus is patient and kind and loving, and then we go and hold grudges against people that have wronged us. Jesus is saying, beware of those kinds of things. Why? Because it means you don't really see me for who I am. And so do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do the things you know about Jesus impact the way that you live your life? If you know that he's sovereign, do you find yourself trusting him and even rejoicing in all of life's circumstances? Or are you anxious, fearful, or frustrated day after day? If you know that he offered a holy sacrifice for your sins, are you thankfully pursuing then a life of purity Or are you still indulging in the very sins that he died for? If you know that he's the Savior who came to not be served, but to serve, are you serving in the same way? Are you seeing Jesus for who he truly is? Now, the Pharisees, they refuse to see Jesus as he truly is. The disciples who have been with Jesus, seen all the signs over an extended period of time, they still don't understand who Jesus truly is. So what hope do we have thousands of years later for us to see Jesus as he truly is? Well, praise the Lord, Jesus knows how to give sight to the blind. And that's exactly what he's going to do next. Look at verse 22. Trust Jesus alone for true spiritual sight. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? 
And he looked up and he said, I see men, but I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. I mean, this has to be the most interesting miracle that Jesus ever does in all of the Gospels, right? I mean, first you have this guy who's blind. His friends bring him to Jesus. And the way that he heals him initially is to spit on his eyes. I mean, imagine you're that guy. You're the blind guy. And your friends say, hey, we're going to bring you to this special guy who's going to heal you. And then someone spits on your face. You'd be like, thanks, guys. Yeah, good one. It's like, no, but they actually did bring him to Jesus, and this is how he healed him. He spit on his eyes, and so this man, you know, begins to see. And Jesus asks him, do you see? And he says, well, I see men, but I see them as trees walking. You know, I mean, I don't want to be ungrateful. I couldn't even see that before, but I'm a little low-key disappointed that it's not everything that I imagined it would be. And so what does Jesus do? Well, then he heals him a second time, and gives him full sight. And so the question is, why would Jesus heal him this way? I mean, was Jesus tired? I mean, like the first one, it didn't quite take, right? He had to do it again, or he wasn't fully relying on the Holy Spirit, you know, and so he needed to do it a second time. No, he did it intentionally this way. And I think what he's doing is he's showing his disciples that this is what they need. I think when he heals him this first way, and this man says, you know, I see men, but I see them like trees walking, I think it's Jesus' way of saying, this is who you are, disciples. I mean, you see certain things, but you don't yet see clearly what it means for me to be the Christ. And what you need is for me to intervene and to open your eyes fully to see me as I truly am. Really what Jesus is doing is really, a, what, or what Mark's doing here is he's giving you a picture of what Jesus is going to do for his disciples. And anyone who wants to truly see Christ, it's going to depend solely on Christ giving them sight. And so the implication for us is we need to call on Christ for clear vision. We need him to open our eyes to see him as he truly is. Because when you see him as he truly is, everything changes. When you see him love, you want to love like him. When you see him serve, you want to serve like him. When you see him willing to suffer for others, you want to suffer for the sake of others. Christ alone gives this kind of spiritual sight. So are there areas in your life where you need to see Jesus more clearly? Well, he can clear your vision. He can clear your vision so that you see him as completely trustworthy and you won't struggle with anxiety again. He can clear your vision so that you see how holy he is, so that you don't take sin lightly anymore. He can clear your vision to see how patient and kind and loving he is so that you can love the difficult people in your life as well. Call on Christ to give you clear vision, and he will. He can open your eyes that you see him clearly, and then everything will change. So call on him alone for clear vision. And then lastly, see the life-altering implications of who Jesus truly is in verse 27. 
So see what kind of Christ he is. Verse 27, Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned him to tell no one about him. So Jesus begins to try to open the eyes of his disciples by asking them questions. And he first asked them a very safe question, right? Who do people say that I am? Right? If you want to get a conversation started, don't ask people to sort of say what they're thinking. Just say, what do other people say? And so the disciples, you know, say, oh, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. So people think you're kind of generally an important person, right? But he's really setting them up for the more important question. Okay, so who do you say that I am? They must confront that question in their own hearts. Jesus is saying, who am I? You've seen me feed thousands twice. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me still the storm. You've seen me heal all kinds of diseases. You've even seen me raise the dead. Who am I? And Peter steps to the plate and gives the best Sunday school answer you can. You are the Christ. Right answer. I mean, he nails it. That is the right answer. Jesus is the Christ. But we're going to see as this passage goes on that when, G- when Peter makes that confession about Jesus, he's kind of like the blind man who sees men, but they're a little bit like trees walking. Peter makes the right recognition that he is the Christ, but he's a little bit fuzzy on what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ. Because what do you think Peter has in mind when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ? You're the political conqueror. You are the coming king. You are going to establish your kingdom. All of your enemies are going to be made a footstool for your feet. And Peter's right. But it's not going to happen quite the way that Peter thinks it is. And I think that's why Jesus tells him at the end of verse 30, don't go around telling people that I'm the Christ because I don't think you really have any idea what that statement means. And so Jesus is going to give him what it means. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. So Peter, right answer, he is the Christ, but Jesus is saying, here's what it means for me to be the Christ. It means I must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. And he says, I must do those things. It's a divine necessity that the Christ suffers, is rejected, is killed, and then rises again. In the beginning of verse 32, it says he was stating the matter plainly. He wasn't hiding it. He wasn't being kind of, you know, mysterious about it. No, he was laying it all out there. If I'm the Christ, this is what has to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. This is who the Christ truly is. The suffering servant who would pay for the sins of his people with his own life. And that's what makes him so glorious. 
He is God. He's the creator of all things, and yet he's the same one who says, I must suffer, be rejected, and be killed before I can rise again. This is the heart of who Jesus is. And for us, this is the heart of what it means for us to profess that he is the Christ, that he is the God who sacrificially serves his people. And everything that you love about him is, this is the core of it, that he's the God who sacrificially serves. Does he forgive your sin? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. Does he empower you to live day after day? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who loves to sacrificially serve his people. Will he provide everything you need? And will he walk with you through the hardest times of your life? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. I mean, Revelation 5, we're going to be spending eternity singing about this very truth, right? Worthy are you. Why? Because you were slain. This is what it means to see Jesus clearly. And this changes everything. And so how does Peter respond to this truth in verse 32? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, I mean, Peter, I mean, he said, I, I want to be polite. You know, I'm going to take you, as, Jesus, I'm going to take you aside. I don't want to embarrass you in front of the other disciples. But all this stuff about suffering and death, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but that's not going to happen. I mean, you're a king. You're a conqueror. You're going to reign, and we're going to reign with you. So stop talking about all of this suffering and death that you are going to experience. It's not going to happen. How does Jesus respond to Peter? Verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus calls Peter Satan. I mean, he doesn't say like, no, 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 Peter, you don't quite understand. Yeah, I'm going to reign, but it's going to be through this. No, 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 no. He says, Get behind me, Satan, to suggest that there would be another way for Jesus to be the Christ that doesn't involve suffering, rejection, and death is satanic. I mean, if you think about it, that's exactly what Satan was offering Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness, right? Jesus, I can give you everything that you came for, the glory of the whole earth, I can give it to you, and all you have to do is bow down to me, right? No suffering, no death, no rejection. Just bow down to me, Jesus, and I'll give you everything that you came for. And that's essentially what Peter is suggesting to Jesus right here. And that's why Jesus calls him Satan. He says, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And so Jesus is asking Peter the question, whose Christ do you want? Do you want your own version of Christ? Or do you want God's version of of Christ? Do you want man's Christ, which is all the benefits of Christ without your life changing at all? Or do you want Christ as he truly is, the one who's willing to suffer for his people? It's the most important question that Peter will have to face, and it's the most important question that we'll have to face. Do you want God's Christ, 
Or do you want your own version of Christ? Look at verse 34. This is kind of the, he's pushing this question further. He says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is what it means to follow Christ, that we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow him. If you truly accept that I am the Christ as I described, this is what it means. It means a decisive decision to give up your life. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. When he says deny yourself, he's not saying, you know, you need to say no to dessert for a few weeks so that you can lose a few pounds or to say no to the TV every night so that you can be more self-controlled. No, when he says deny yourself, he says you need to give up a life centered on yourself. You need to refuse to be guided by your own interests. You need to surrender the control of your destiny to me. Right before Christ, it's sort of my life, my goals, my accomplishments. And sometimes even when we come to Christ, it's sort of like, how will Christ help me accomplish my goals and my life and my accomplishments? But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. We don't think in terms of my life and my goals and my accomplishments anymore. We think in terms of who Christ is. You know, it's kind of like if you have a car I don't know if you had this experience. Like, I loved my first car, and so I didn't want to give up this car, right? I sort of said, well, I'll just sort of fix all these different things. You know, I'll get a new stereo, or I'll get new tires, and the whole time I'm thinking, this is my car. I'm not going to give up my car, and this is exactly what Jesus is saying. No, you give up the car, right? This is more than Jesus take the wheel. This is Jesus, this isn't my car anymore. It's your car, and you're going to do whatever it is you want with it. So if you're truly following Christ, denying yourself means I don't think in terms of my life, I think in terms of his life, his goals, his accomplishments. That's what I'm living for now. So he says, deny yourself. Then he says, take up your cross. And likewise, this is not referring to having a tough boss at work or having some other trial that you're going through that you're bearing your cross. No, this is the, uh, the acceptance of a death sentence for the sake of Christ. And this would have been a shocking statement to his disciples, right? Because this is before the cross. They don't know that that's going to happen. I mean, when we think about Jesus, we think of the cross. But the disciples, I mean, what do they think it means to follow Jesus at this point? They think, again, he's going to be the ruling conqueror, and we're going to get to sit at his right and his left hand ruling with him. I mean, we associate Christ with the cross, but this is the first time they're hearing about it hearing that if they're going to follow him, it's going to mean shame, suffering, and death. And then he says, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow him in what? In what he just said, that he's going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. So not only do you completely renounce your life, you also continually follow Jesus. You follow Jesus even if it means pain and suffering and death. And for most of the disciples, that's exactly what it's going to mean. A life of sacrificial service. It's the life that Christ lived for you, and it's the life that he wants you to live for the sake of others. And you know the crazy thing about that? Is that when you live this way, 
you actually find life. You find true joy and satisfaction. Look what he says next in verse 36, or verse 35, rather. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So if you seek your life and your interests, you will lose your life. I mean, if you cling to your life, it's not going to work. You're going to find yourself frustrated and angry. And worse, Jesus says at the end of that, you will actually lose your life. But what does he say? If you give up your life, if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you will actually find life. You will find true enjoyment. Look what he says again in verse 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So following Christ means being committed not only to Jesus, the person, but also Jesus' mission, the gospel. That's what you seek, right? You don't seek your life and your success and your enjoyment and your comfort. You seek to be a part of what Christ is doing in the world. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ can't be just a part of your life. You know, you kind of can't live for yourself and then sort of live for Christ on the side. No, it means you wake up every morning with one purpose. How can I live for Christ and his gospel today? And this radically changes your perspective on everything. I mean, if you think about your marriage, So if you're living for Christ, then your marriage is not primarily about your joy and your satisfaction. It's about loving someone and wanting to see Christ's purposes accomplished in their life, even if they don't treat you well. Why would you do something like that? Because it's exactly how Christ treated you. Or if you think about your parenting, your task as a parent every day is not primarily to get the kids through school or to make them successful or to maybe just make them less irritating. No, your job is to see Christ's purposes accomplished in their life. Or at work, your your task every day is not primarily the success of your company or the avoiding of conflict with your coworkers. No, your job is to see Christ honored in how you work and in how you interact with others in your workplace. You have a new filter on all of life. The filter is this. Does this advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? And so every decision that you have, you can put it through that filter, right? Should I take this new job? Does that advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I pursue this relationship? Will that person help me advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I move to this state or this city? Will it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? How should I spend my retirement? Well, there's a lot of things you can do, but will it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? I mean, how do we typically make these kinds of big decisions? Should I take this job? Oh, it pays more. Yeah, I mean, I'll have to work longer hours and I'll be away from the, but we'll have more money. Or should I, you know, move to this other state? Well, I'm sick of liberal California, so yeah, I want to move to this other state. I'm not saying it's wrong to ever move. Of course not. But what's the reason for the move? Are we thinking, I'm going to move because I want to be in a place where I think I can better advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? And Jesus says, when you live that way, when you have that as the filter of all your life, you will actually find life.
You will find joy. You will find satisfaction. You will experience life at its fullest. You know, it might be that the frustration and the depression that you have in this life is precisely because you're still thinking in terms of my life. You know, why is my job so hard? Why is my marriage so difficult? Why do my kids drive me crazy? Because you're still seeking your life. And if you would give up your life and live for Christ and his gospel, you would find joy. And the frustration and the depression, the anxiety would all go away because you'd be living for Christ and his gospel. I mean, think about what Paul says, right? In Philippians 3, 5 to 11, Paul basically says, I lived for myself and I excelled. I mean, I had it all. I was, you know, Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I, I, all of it. And what does he say? I count all that stuff as garbage compared to what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul even says, I want to be like Christ, even in his sufferings, even to the point of becoming like him in his death. And Paul says, I find surpassing joy in that prospect of living my life completely for Christ. If you live that way, Jesus is saying, you will not be disappointed. You will live every day with purpose and joy, even in the midst of the most severe trials, because you're thinking not about your life, but about his. And so if you say that you're someone who truly sees Jesus as he is, as the Christ, does your life reflect it? I mean, you're in church right now. I know that you can give me the right answers. But Jesus wants more than the right answers. He wants us to see him as he truly is and then live in the same way that he lived his life. A life of sacrificial service for the sake of the gospel. Does your life match what you say you see about Jesus? And I know that if you've known Christ for one day or 50 years, of course the answer to that question is no. It does not match. Everything I know about Jesus does not flesh out in my life perfectly. But we can pursue Christ day after day. We can ask him to give us that clearer and clearer vision of who he is so that our lives do begin to change. And we do find ourselves living more for Christ than for ourselves. And when we do that, we'll find great joy. Jesus ends with these words in verse 36. It says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. To live for anything other than Christ and his gospel is going to cost you your soul. So what could possibly be worth your soul? Like nothing. And so live for Christ. Live for the God who sacrificially serves. It's the only thing worth your soul. And so in verse 38, you have to decide what you're going to live for. Are you going to live for the praise of an adulterous and sinful generation, or are you going to live for the glory of your Father? 
To live for the glory of your Father means that you're going to lose your life for the sake of Christ and his gospel, but you'll find that you actually find life at its fullest. And so are you living out what you know about Christ? Maybe as you talk today to your friends or your family, think about this. What is one way that I want my life to more fully reflect Christ and his gospel this week? Make that the topic of conversation as you continue on today. Because the more we see of Christ, the more our lives need to change to be a good reflection of who Christ is. That our lives would reflect all the glorious implications of the statement, Jesus is the Christ. And praise God, Christ can clear our vision so that we do see him that way and we do live that way as well. Let's pray. Father, when we come to a text like this, we're just humbled uh, because we realize just how much we don't live for Christ, the ways that we should. And yet we're also encouraged because we know that Christ is truly worthy of living for. We know that if we do say that we deny ourselves, if we will take up our cross and if we will follow him, we will find life at its fullest. Lord, we confess that there are many times when we are living for ourselves and that usually ends in frustration or anger or disappointment. And so may those things turn us back to living for Christ. Lord, may we just be amazed day after day, every day, would we get a clear picture of Christ? Would we remind ourselves every morning when we wake up that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? And may that truth not only encourage our hearts and give us great confidence that we will one day be with him forever, but may it impact the way that we live. May it help us to be better husbands, better wives, better fathers, better mothers, better friends, better co-workers. May we be a church and a people that is set with that filter, is this going to advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? And though that at one, in one sense can feel intimidating, or maybe even it doesn't sound like it would be a life of joy, may we trust that we'll actually find life at its fullest when we live that way. And so give us that joy. Give us the opportunity to see good fruit in our lives through living for Christ and his gospel. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.